Glad that you're here. Are you ready? Yes. You got your notepads out? Ready to put it in gear? This morning, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about, and don't hold me to a few minutes, by the way. We're going to talk about tending the fire, that we are to be a place of worship. Over the last several weeks, Pastor Jeff has been sharing about what kind of place has God called Newbridge to, to be. As you know, less than two months ago, we birthed and launched a, a brand new church in this place called Newbridge. And we've been going through and articulating the vision of, of, of who we are and what God has called us to be as we're in the stages of this year, 2016, laying down the foundation stones, if you will, that everything is going to be built upon. And certainly one of the stones, the primary stones, is that we are to be a place of worship through tending the fire. You know, worship is more than just a few songs we come to get on a Sunday morning. Worship is much more than your playlist on your iPhone or on your smartphone. Worship goes way beyond that. To give you a little insight into my life, the first church I ever darkened the door was a little Methodist church in Decula, Georgia. The first worship service I ever attended was in that particular context. And as Jeff likes to say, which is so true, whoever gets to you first influences you the most. And that's kind of who got to me first there in that Methodist church. I got exposed to their rituals and their traditions and what they did. And that's where I met Jesus in that environment. I met Jesus singing the, or not singing, but saying the Apostles' Creed and singing the Gloria Patri and the doxology. And it was rich and it was very meaningful for me in that particular place. In fact, I got invited to sing at the choir in this little church. Now, I don't know what tone-deaf person uh, chose to give me that invitation. I think they just needed a warm body on the seat, and, they, and there wasn't a mic in front of me, so the, possi the possible for damage was minimal. But I got put in the choir, and there was a guy in the church during that time who was in his 20s who had been gloriously saved out of drug and alcohol addiction. God had supernaturally saved him, delivered him. Some of you know him, Richard Hugh Joe Nash, in his, in his 20s. And Hugh Joe was so excited about what Jesus had done. And he sat right next to me in this little Methodist church choir loft. And, he, and at that time, we wore these really um, big choir robes with real big, big sleeves. And as I began singing the choir, Hugh Joe was right next to me. And Hugh Joe liked to lift his hands in worship and, and praise the Lord. He was the only guy in the church that lifted his hands in worship. The problem was I was standing right next to him in a very cramped choir seat. So as he would lift up his uh, right arm, the flap of his choir robe throughout the entire service would be flapping into my face over and over and over again. So after a couple of weeks, I realized out of pure self-defense, I'm going to have to lift my hands in church. <laughs> so the first time I ever lifted my hands in worship was not unto God, but was in protection against Hugo's <laughs> extemporaneous and gregarious worship of God. <laughs> so I had my hand up just to protect myself from him. But he was so excited. So that was the context in which I began to experience what worship was like. But in truth, we come here to bring worship, 
not to get worship. And I don't want you to miss this point because it's going to be kind of woven into everything we're going to talk about this morning. We come here to bring worship, not to get worship. If you've been around church for more than five years, you know that worship has been a point of contention in many local churches over the years. Lots of division over worship. Now, I'm defining worship here as that 30-minute segment on a Sunday morning. It's how most of us tend to define worship. There's been lots of division over that one particular subject, and it has caused a lot of problems. Why, you say? Well, someone once said when the devil was kicked out of heaven, he fell in the choir loft. <laughs> and that choir robes cover a multitude of sin. I don't know if there's any truth in that. But we do know it, there is some validity because we know that Satan himself, our great adversary, under his former name was Lucifer, one of the greatest angels ever created, was perhaps the lead worshiper in heaven. The area of worship the enemy knows a lot about. He's very familiar with worship, very familiar with music. And it makes sense, doesn't it, why there is such conflict in this particular area because the enemy is so good at what he does to bring division in the arena of worship, to keeping us as individuals and corporate bodies from worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Can I tell you what the devil wants to do? He wants to steal from us. Now listen very carefully for a moment. He wants to steal from us perhaps the most deeply fulfilling opportunity we have as believers is our worship of the living God. We know our thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And one of the things he would love to steal from you is one of the most deeply fulfilling opportunities we have as believers to worship and experience the living God. Is it any wonder the enemy is trying so hard? That's not even to talk about how the enemy uses music in general in the culture in which we live. And he uses the lyrics and the beat and the tones to infuse satanic behavior. But can I tell you, God didn't create, our Satan didn't create music. God created music. It was God's idea and not his idea. So if we are coming to get something this morning, we have missed the whole point. Now listen to this very carefully. If we are coming to get something, rather than bring something, we will run it through the grid of our own personal preferences, likes, and dislikes. I want you to really hear this. This is a key that's going to unlock some revelation for all of us. If we come to get something out of church. That means everything that we have come to get is going to run through the grid of our own personal preferences and dislikes and likes, and we're going to evaluate it based on that. Can you, can you, can you chew that for a second? You see, our corporate worship experience rests upon our individual understanding of worship and what worship looks like in our life beginning 1 p.m. on Sunday afternoon all the way through 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. That is what defines worship for us, not 30 minutes on a Sunday morning based on something we come to get, but rather than something that we come to bring that's been cultivated throughout the entire week. The antithesis of that becomes the equation I'm coming to get, therefore I'm going to run it through my own filtering process, which is not the most reliable thing on the planet, and I'm going to evaluate it based upon that. 
So that being said, are you ready? <laughs> so let's go in the Bible where all of us go to talk about worship. What book in the Bible do you think that's the natural default place to go to talk about worship? That's right, the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Very smart people in this church. Leviticus, someone once said reading the book of Leviticus was like chewing gravel for breakfast. Leviticus chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 6, I'm going to read just a few verses from Leviticus chapter 8, verse number 13. I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning. And the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. It must not go out. Father, thank you this morning for the privilege to get to represent your word and your voice today. Lord, for as much as it is possible, God, may my human words harmonize with the voice of heaven. And may you, Lord Jesus, walk amongst your candlestick this morning. And may we hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church in this hour that you would call us out from where we are to a place, God, of freedom and joy in you, that we would move beyond the status quo, move beyond the excuses, move beyond the limitations of what we see as implacable barriers against advancement. Lord, may we move forward, God, into the impossible realm of seeing you do amazing things as you touch your people through worship. Open our ears to hear. Give us obedient hearts today, Lord. May it be practical to us that we can put it into motion as soon as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Apologize for the runny nose and stuff. So if you hear a little that going on, that's what's going on. <laughs> How many of you have ever had a wood-burning stove or something of that nature? Know what I'm talking about? How many of you actually maybe came up in a home or old enough to remember or lived in the backwoods, you know, long enough where that's all you had was a wood-burning stove? That was the means by which you heated the house. That was the means by which you cooked. Anybody in the place? Not too many. Most of us have lost touch with that reality. But perhaps you know they require a great deal of work. you got to, like, keep the fire lit all the time because if the fire goes out, what do you have to do? 
You've got to go through the task of lighting it again. In the early days of the Oregon Trail, the settlers would go out and they would load their wagons with everything that they needed. But one of the things that they wanted to make sure they had were lit hot coals. They would wrap up and they would guard because they would need to be able to start fires wherever they stopped and camp for the night. Because starting a fire was not an easy task to accomplish. So they had to keep the fire going all the time. But unfortunately, our modern world in which we live in has caused us to lose touch with the basics, hasn't it? We have been disconnected from the harsh realities of life. Everything for us has become easier, quicker, and more efficient, hasn't it? Supposedly to save us more time, but we all know in reality, we just fill that time with other stuff. And we're more busy than we ever have been. But it's caused us to lose touch with certain things that require a great deal of work that will keep us alive and cause us to survive. In the tabernacle, the word is given some very in specific instructions to the priest. And what we see in this passage, the priest had a responsibility to tend the fire and keep it burning. In this passage, three times it is repeated in these few short verses to the fire must be kept burning. Three times. The fire was never allowed to go out. Now you might be thinking, listen, what in the world does the book of Leviticus have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? In fact, I don't even like reading the book of Leviticus. Good nighttime reading puts me to sleep in five minutes. Can I tell you something? It has a lot to do with us. Can I tell you the Old Testament has a lot to do with us? There are certain churches that actually exist and they call themselves New Testament churches. And unfortunately they define that because they relegate the Old Testament to just something we don't even use anymore. In fact, if the New Testament doesn't repeat it, they will re repeat the Old Testament. Everything else is invalid in the Old Testament. Can I tell you, we don't believe that. We believe God's Word is all 66 books written by 40 guys over 1,500 years ordained and inspired Scripture. In fact, I will tell you this, that the Old Testament is literally pregnant with the New Testament. The Old Testament is pregnant and inflated with the New Testament. The Old Testament gave birth to the New Testament. It was really the mother of all New Testament truth. Therefore, when we study the, New, when we study the Old Testament, we put on the lens of the New Testament, and then we can gain and glean incredible meanings and truths in the Old Testament through the lens of a New Testament reality. So please never discount your Old Testament. But when you study the Old Testament, put on new covenant understanding. Put on the blood of Jesus and you'll see him everywhere all throughout the pages. The Old Testament is pregnant with New Testament reality. Guess what? You are a priest. Therefore, in the book of Leviticus, when it said the priest had the responsibility, he said, well, that's for somebody else. Certainly, I'm not a priest. Oh, yes, you are a priest. Say, I'm a priest. 1 Peter 2.9, you don't say that arbitrarily, but you say it as a confession of Scripture. You know this, 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a what? Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Therefore, if you indeed are a priest, where should you go to find out the responsibilities that you have as a priest? to the book of Leviticus. And therefore, through the lens of New Testament understanding and illumination of the Holy Spirit, you're going to find out a lot about your job description. You want to know what your job description is? You need to find out. One of the worst things in the world is to get a job with no job description. Anybody ever had that happen to you before? Oh, just go back there and work in the warehouse. 
What are you going to do? Well, just you know, find something that needs to be done. You know how painful that is? You ever had a job like that? I remember I worked in Kmart when I was 16 years old, and my boss said, listen, you're over the houseware section. Just go take care of that. That was, that was the extent of my Kmart training. The only thing I knew about Kmart was the blue light specials, and you roll the cart around. That's all I knew. What do you mean to do in houseware? Just go, to, just go take care of it. So I had to go right there and literally fumble myself through figuring out what's going on. See, God hasn't called us to such ambiguity, has he? He has called us to understand who we are. And part of our designation as a believer is to fulfill the role of a priest in this place. What does that mean? So this morning I want to give you very quickly three principles of tending the fire. Three principles of tending the fire. Because this has everything to do with our worship of the living God. We have to think way beyond worship as just the 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship is way more involved than that. If that's our only understanding of worship, then we have completely missed the boat. In fact, you're on the bank and the boat has long left you. Worship is way more about that. Our worship is our responsibility. And I believe in this passage we'll see some things. Three principles of tending the fire. Number one, obviously, keep the fire burning. The command for perpetual fire upon the altar shows that God wants us to worship Him with consistent devotion and not sporadic enthusiasm. With consistent devotion and not sporadic enthusiasm. I can tell you I am very good at sporadic enthusiasm, aren't you? We're all really good at sporadic enthusiasm. But consistent devotion is a horse of a different color. One of the things that has infected modern day Christianity is what I like to call the golden corral syndrome. Who likes the golden corral? You can buffet your body at the golden corral buffet. You go buffet your body there. So what happens is we go, and some of us will go, and we're going to go to the golden corral, and this is what, this is what it looks like. We're going to go and we're going to just eat as much as we can possibly eat in one sitting. And then we're just not going to eat the rest of the week and just live off that which we took in at the Golden Corral. It's Golden Corral Christianity. We're going to come to church. We're going to worship a little bit. We're going to sing a little bit. We are going to glutton ourselves at the ecclesiastical buffet. And then when we walk out the door at 1230 or 1 o'clock, we were never going to crack our Bibles. We're never going to sing. We're never going to do anything else. We're going to live off of that one meal, that one experience all week until I can crawl my way back into church on a Sunday morning until I can get back to the Golden Corral Buffet. Now what's going to happen to your physical body if you live like that? Can I tell you, I have walked this out in my own life, I'll tell you. This is, not, this is not something I'm talking about in the ethereal way. This is very practical for me because I've always been in this love-hate relationship with food. And I tried for years, or I'm just not going to, I'm going to eat a whole lot so I can enjoy. For me, it's all about being full. It's about quantity control. They say, you know, portion control, I think is the most appropriate way to say in that. I have no concept of what portion control is. For me, <laughs> I want to control my portion, right? I don't want the portion to control me. So the more, the better. 
So I literally lived for years thinking, I'm going to eat as much as I can stuff in my gullet, right? I'm going to go to Mellow Mushroom and I'm going to ingest a whole large pizza because I just love it so much. But I'm going to counteract that and say, but I'm not going to eat for three or four days to make up for my, for, for my gluttony. How many know what I'm talking about? Anorexia never worked for me. Bulimia never worked for me. I found out what worked for me. But guess what? It didn't work so well. What ends up happening to your physical body? You get sick. You're not healthy. Your physical body was not designed to be treated like that. Your physical body was not designed to eat one day and not eat for five days. How's your body designed? That's why you got hundreds of feet of small intestines, right? You got to keep something going all the time so the nutrients can be absorbed by your body. Can I tell you, our spiritual makeup is a lot like our physical makeup. We must be ongoingly worshiping the Lord every day and not given to golden crowd Christianity that so many of us default to. Now listen to this. If we worship only when we feel like it, it really isn't mature worship. It's sporadic enthusiasm. It's nice when it happens, I tell you, but worship is not something that's predicated on how you feel or what you want to do. Worship is something that we must do, that we must keep this fire of worship burning in all of our life. In fact, our New Testament model for worship comes from a verse that many of us can quote, certainly will know when I read it to you in Romans 12 and 1, begins to give us the model of what worship looks like for us. So therefore I urge you, brethren, and you can insert sister in there if you need to. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your what? Spiritual service of worship. In other words, worship is something that we serve to. We don't come to get from. Worship is a part of our service as unto the Lord. Feelings alone, that which drives sporadic enthusiasm, feelings alone will not produce living sacrifices. Feelings will never produce living sacrifices. Feelings will never produce the maturity in your life to keep the fire going. Make sense? Your feelings will never lead you to a place of becoming a living sacrifice because a lot of times it don't feel good. But we must do it. That is the place of mature worship. Let me illustrate this way for you. How many of you remember a time when you were in love? Do you remember that feeling of being in love? Can some of you think that far back? Maybe some of you are right in the throngs of it, right, right, right in the midst of it right now, of being in love. Do you remember how that felt? I remember when I met my wife, when she started begging me to marry her. <laughs> I was seized and gripped in the euphoria of being in love. Do you remember that? Remember what it was like? I mean, it was, it was I mean, I've never been on drugs, but it would have to be nothing short of a of an absolutely intoxicating experience. That you can be with that person all day long and you can't wait to get home so you can call them on the phone. That's before we could text now, which I can't even fathom that completely. But you would call them and then you would stay on the phone for hours, hours until I would hear my wife on the other end snoring and realizing she finally just couldn't stay up anymore. And then we had to hang up. And you could not wait till the next day to get to be with that person. You, that other person was literally like a drug to you. 
Are you getting it? That's what being in love is all about. It's a great season. Talking about legal drug addiction. I mean, my goodness, that season is powerful. It is strong. It is euphoric. It is just, you are swooned on a daily basis. It's great. (laughs) But how many of you have been married long enough to realize that that euphoria probably isn't today what it was then? Now, you're not admitting to a bad marriage by any stretch. But I'm saying we'll be celebrating 26 years this coming month. And I can tell you, I don't exactly feel the same today as I did two months after meeting her. And I don't say that as a bad thing. I say that as a wonderful thing. Because the body can't sustain that level of drug addiction, I don't think. (laughs) Because it's rooted in feeling. And it is good. I tell young couples that are in that season, I say, soak it up, drink it up. Drink it in. It is a great season of your life, and you don't want to minimize it at all, but it too shall pass. No feeling can be relied upon to last in its full intensity or to last at all. Now listen to this. Feelings will always swing on the pendulum of personal preferences. If you don't remember anything this morning, I would like for that to be burned into your corporate brain. (laughs) Feelings, your feelings will always swing on the pendulum of your personal preferences. You hear that? Knowledge can last. Habits can last. Principles can last. They're enduring. Feelings come and go. Feelings are not enduring. They don't stay with you. They are great when they're on, but they are horrendous when they're off. They're unpredictable. They are fair-weather friends at best. In this example of marriage, I can say I may not be experiencing that in-love euphoria that I once experienced 27 years ago, but I can tell you ceasing to be in love does not mean ceasing to love. You getting it? Ceasing to be in love, as we define it, does not mean ceasing to love. C.S. Lewis, one of my my favorite authors, he describes this mature love with these words. He says, it is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. But this quieter or more mature love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it all. Well said, Dr. Lewis. Thank God for the explosion. But it is not a sustainable type of explosion. Something else must grow after that. It will blaze the trail. It will dig up the dirt. But something else will grow in its wake. It cannot be sustained. It may dig up the dirt, but it plants no seed, brothers and sisters. It may prepare the ground. But that which God plants is a more mature love that will grow over time. We um, have the privilege of... um, taking care of my wife's grandparents. Um, we affectionately call them Gam and Gandy. I didn't mean to get emotional, but 
It's something we live in every day of our lives. Wonderful people. Strong marriage. This year they will be celebrating their 71st wedding, 72nd wedding anniversary. Can I tell you, they've been through some, they've been through some years. As we take care of them and we love them and um, we know them so well, we've watched their love over the years. And we watch their bodies deteriorate and it's hard to watch that, but one of the things that I have observed and that God reminds me of this, of this powerful, you know, you're not married 72 years without some ups and downs. It's got to be more than feeling to stick together that long. 72 years. So it's kind of got to the point that we have to have a baby monitor in our room at night because they're in the room downstairs so we can sort of listen to what's going on down there. Not for some kind of sadistic or voyeuristic, anything of that nature, but it's just we don't even know if they're going to fall out of bed or not, right? So we kind of, so we're up there listening to this, and every morning, now you have to understand, Michelle's grandfather is in the latter stages of Alzheimer's, so he can kind of talk, he doesn't know who you are, but he can, he can interact at a very superficial level. Sometimes he knows us, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he knows her, sometimes he doesn't. But every morning, every morning, if I'm still in bed, but around 6 a.m., I hear on that monitor, and you know what he wakes up and says? I love you, darling. <laughs> In that power, he says, I love you, darling. Oh, my goodness. You know what? That didn't come from the cerebral cortex. That didn't come from any kind of learned behavior. That was born out of not this feel-good, sporadic, enthusiastic love. It was born out of a deep, mature love for one another. And we have seen that. Because their love is not rooted in a feeling, but something much deeper, much more satisfying it's not rooted in personal preferences, but preferring one another. That's how a marriage will last for 72 years. That's how anything will last for that long. Not personal preferences. God forbid, we wouldn't have made it the first six weeks. You get married, you all of a sudden realize you don't share personal preferences. That's one of the first light bulbs that come on really fast once the wedding ring goes on the finger. But it's learning, preferring one another. And in that comes joy. That is what happens when you consistently keep the fire going in your life. The coal bed gets richer and deeper and more vast and more powerful in you to keep the fire burning. I like this verse in Romans 12:1. It says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Romans 12:1. Fervor is the Greek word zeo, and it's the verb that's used to describe the boiling of water, adding the heat to keep the water at such a degree where it's boiling. How do we worship? We add to it continually. We keep the fire burning. I'm always fascinated, and I use this illustration all the time for my own life, is that when you see these forest fires that rage out west oftentimes, Massive, you know, consuming thousands of acres, tens of thousands of acres, and they try to drop water and they drop chemicals, and, and it really doesn't even touch it. Do you know one of the chief ways they extinguish those out of control fires? What the firemen do? They actually do what? They light another fire. 
It's interesting, isn't it? They actually find in which direction the wind is blowing. They light another fire that will be caught up in the direction of the wind to burn toward the out of control fire to control it and keep it in check. What's the principle? Light a bigger fire. All of your areas of your life have the tendency to burn out of control. And it's very difficult to extinguish certain fires in all of our lives because we are tied up in our sin nature. It is there. The more you try to extinguish it, the worse it gets oftentimes. It's difficult to do. Talk to a young man entering the period of adolescence in his life and you talk to him through the years until, until about their mid-20s and they'll tell you all about that fire they just can't seem to control and the more they try to put it out the worse it gets because the more you focus on that fire that's all you really see. It's like me telling you don't think about a pink elephant. Every one of you just thought about a pink elephant. The more you try to put it out you just simply can't. What's the solution? The solution is you light another fire. You get your eyes off of the one and you start another one and you fuel that one and that fire will take care of the other one. In fact, the great fire of love is the great conqueror of lust. You want to conquer lust? Fuel love in your life. The fire of love and devotion and worship to the living God and then to others will control the other fire. It keeps lust in check. The more you try to fix lust, the more lust begins to control you. The more you think about a pink elephant, light another fire and keep that fire burning and growing with great intensity. You keep the fire burning. Number two, the last year quicker. Keep the fire clean. Keep the fire clean. I don't want to reread this whole passage, but in verse 10 and verse 11, it specifically says that the priest's responsibility were to keep the ashes out of the fire and to remove them from the camp. Ashes keep a fire from burning cleanly. And for a clean fire, ashes must be removed. Ashes come from what will not burn completely in the fire. Because the fire is going to consume everything in it. That which the fire won't consume turns into ash. And then what do you got to do with the ash? You need to dispose of the ash so the fire will continually burn clean. Ashes from a fire will not ascend upward, but they fall back down and seek to smother out the fire. So the ashes the priests were to taken outside the camp and be discarded. The ashes in our fire comes from what? Sin and selfishness and parts of our flesh that are not consumable by God that need to be dealt with and need to be removed on our own volition and our, and our own action. You know, certain things that we got to carry out ourselves. You realize that, right? God will forgive you and God will set you free, but some mess you've got to clean up yourself. There are some stains that you've got to scrub out. There are some piles of dirt you've got to sweep up and you've got to get out of the house. God's not going to come into your house and he's, he's, he's not your maid, he's not your butler. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has set you free by royal declaration with the power to back it up. And it has set you free from the tyranny of sin. Now he says you are set free. Now let's start working on your mess. And you begin to deal with ash. And the more ashes you get rid of, the cleaner the fire will burn. A fire will burn brightest and the hottest when it is kept free from ashes. And vice versa, right? Our worship is hindered when we don't deal with our ashes. 
See, God lights the fire. We begin to stoke the fire. We begin to grow. But a life that doesn't deal with the ashes, it drowns out and diminishes the fire of God in your life. Just how it works. Speaking of marriage, my wife and I have been married probably about a year and a half. And we had moved to Cleveland, Tennessee for me to pursue my higher education. One morning, Sunday morning, we got in this argument. Now, I don't even remember what the argument was, but I think I remember what it could have been about. So I, I in the early days, was, was incredibly a Nazi when it came to time. I wanted to be early everywhere we went. But not just early. I wanted to, like, plan for any conceivable problem. Like the tire might go flat, bad traffic, all that. So we got to leave in time to be sure we can, we can deal with any problem along the way and still get there early. I've loosened up moderately over the years, I hope. So anyway, she was probably not getting ready in our particular time, my, my time frame, and I, I was getting more angry by the minute. And I found out the more I fussed at her, the slower she got. <laughs> I mean, I think it must have been like a Murphy's Law. The, the matter I got, the, I think by design, she just was slowly putting that lipstick on, slowly put it on. So finally we got in the car, and I mean, I was just to the boiling. I was seething with anger that we're only going to be five minutes early. So we pulled into the church parking lot that we were visiting. We'd only, we'd only, only gone a couple of weeks, and we got in, and we, you know, got into the pew, and we, you know, sat down. They began, you know, worship, and there's my lovely wife. She just begins just worshiping the Lord, and I'm just sitting there just as angry and fuming and smoke coming out of my ears, mad as a hornet. And she's just enjoying Jesus. And I'm looking at her thinking, how, how can she be so happy, and I'm so mad and angry? The ashes of my anger was just building up, hindering my worship. And finally, into the, about the you know, second song, I was going, this is ridiculous. I can't sit through this whole service like this. I just can't. So I turned to her and I took her hand. I reached up and I pulled her hand back down from worship. And I said, honey, I'm so sorry. Would you just forgive me? I, I, I was really, I've been a, I have been a horse as you know what. I am, I am so sorry. Please, please forgive me. And she smiled. She said, of course, I forgive you. Do you know what happened? It was almost like instantaneous. Worship came. I began to worship the Lord in freedom and in love and in joy because that little bit of ash was got out of the way from worship. Worship is hindered by ashes. That's how it works. Hebrews 12 and 28, you know this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You see, a life of true worship will always produce ashes. That's not a bad thing. When ashes are produced, what does that mean? That the fire is burning. And the hotter the fire is burning, the more ashes are produced, and the more you get the privilege to carry outside the camp. That's how it's supposed to be. Ashes are a wonderful byproduct of what the fire does. It enables us to isolate it and know exactly what it is and remove it away and out of that which can be consumed. It is the wood, the hay, and the stubble of our life that is eliminated in lieu of the gold, silver, and bronze that is preserved by the fire of God in our life, which is the fire of worship. It's a beautiful thing that we must learn to cooperate with, these things that happen as we tend the fire of worship in our life every day. Number three, and finally, Keep the fire fresh. We see this in verse number 12. The fire was to be tended daily because the sacrifices to be offered were to be daily in the morning and in the evening. 
And verse 12 says, the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offerings on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings. How often was it to be done? Every morning. And you can consult Exodus 29. It goes on to say also in the evening as well. That in the morning and in the evening, the wood was to be supplied to keep the fire going. It wasn't a once a week at the Golden Corral. Can I tell you your morning time is important? Your evening time is important? When you rise up and when you go down are the times when you begin adding the fuel of worship to your life. This is how David said it in Psalm 59. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. In the morning, David will begin to worship the Lord, keeping the fire fresh and anew. We need to keep our spiritual fervor fresh by fueling this fire every day. How do we do that? Through the, through the Word and through prayer and through worship and serving the Lord and fellowship and the litany of ways the Bible teaches us how to cultivate and stoke that fire. Recognize we can't create the fire. All we can do is stoke the fire. God creates the fire. He puts it in us. But it's up to us whether it is a flicker or whether it is a roaring, roaring fire. That solely rests upon our responsibility. In fact, a lot of the Christian life is figuring out what God's part is and what your part is. Much of your Christian maturity can be measured by you delineating between those two sets of responsibilities. You get that? Or God does His part and then we have a part to do. And when you begin to confuse those two things is when you begin to get into trouble. As you mature in your walk with God, you begin to see how that operates and understand what I need to do and what God needs to do. God says, I will put the fire in you. I will call you out of darkness. The moment you are born again, I'm going to put inside of you my Holy Spirit. And he is my fire and he is in you. Now it's up to you what you're going to do with it. Are you going to stoke it or not? Because the golden crowd thing won't work. It doesn't matter how good you think your fire is. If you only throw some wood on it one day a week, you think what's going to happen to your fire come Saturday? Here's the reality. It's gonna, it'll be burned out before midnight Sunday night. And that's why you have absolutely nothing the rest of the week. You have no light, no illumination, no heat, no power, no direction from God. You may have it for a moment, and it's great on a Sunday morning. Thank God for these opportunities. But if we only throw the log on right then, that flicker is going to catch on a little bit. But what you add here is only like one log in the big scheme of things. And it's going to be incinerated before you go to bed tonight. It's going to be built. How you wake up is what you put on before you go to bed tonight and what you wake up. That's where worship begins. The five seconds before you close your eyes and the five seconds after you wake up. May I recommend to you while you are vertical, while you are horizontal, while your eyes are naturally fixated on the vertical, that's the moment when your worship should begin, morning and evening. You're already horizontal. Your eyes are fixed vertical. That's the moment you need to connect with the living God. The moment your eyes go from vertical to horizontal, the cares of this world can come in and grip you. Very simple, isn't it? Five minutes. When you wake up, lay in bed. I do this every morning. I'll reach over. I grab my iPad. I grab my Bible. I will try to open up to the book of Proverbs, and I'll begin to give myself some word. Lord, I'm going to fix my eyes upon you because I know myself well enough to know the moment I get up, the moment my eye starts looking around, I'm going to see clothes that need to be folded, beds that need to be made, things that need to be done, emails need to be returned. It works for me. It might work for you. Worship team, would you come on and make your way back up? I want to ask you a question, and I don't want you to respond to it too quickly. I want you to think about it. 
All right. Does God need our worship? Does God need our consistent devotion to him and worship of him? Does God need our worship? It's kind of a trick question, isn't it? And if I would have said, does God desire our worship? Be quickly a yes, wasn't it? But does God need our worship? No. Because to imply God needs anything implies a deficiency in his inherent immutable character. God doesn't need anything. He's not deficient in any way. He doesn't need a B12 shot. He doesn't need a vitamin. He doesn't need his greens or wheat or protein. He doesn't need any of that stuff. He is completely self-sustaining, self-fulfilled in his character within the context of what we describe as the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Love, mutually existing as one God yet separate, fulfilling each other with love and devotion and obedience. It exists within the Trinity. God is completely fulfilled within himself. So the next question, who benefits then the most from our worship? Absolutely, right? There's a big difference in worshiping something or someone who needs it versus worshiping someone or something who doesn't need it. That means God is completely pure and holy in his thoughts toward us. He will never manipulate or violate or coerce a situation to work his advantage because he simply doesn't need it. He's completely self-fulfilled. Therefore, who benefits the most from worship? We do. I do. The word worship literally means, we get that from a Latin word, and it simply means to ascribe worth to something. That's how we end up with worship. We are ascribing worth to something. In other words, if I want to, I, to some degree, I worship this piece of paper because I'm ascribing worth to it by making sure it doesn't get wrinkled and it's in a place where I can see it. I'm, this is valuable to me. So that's what the word worship literally means. It can be applied with a lowercase w in many different situations. So worship then means ascribing worth to something. So guess what? Here's a principle. Write this down. What goes up must come down. Ever heard that? What goes up must come down. I really want you to sink your spiritual teeth into this because it is so good. When we send up his worth, when his worth goes up, what comes back down? Our worth comes back down. You getting it? In other words, when we begin ascribing worth to him, what do we get back? Our worth in his eyes. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, when we send up worth, we get worth back, but it comes in the power of God's love for us. Is it any wonder the enemy wants to deprive us of such a thing? When we read in John 6 and we read in Hebrew or John 4 and in Hebrew that the father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. 
We find out in the book of James, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. What is it God is wanting to do? Why is the Father seeking such worshipers? What does God plan to do when he begins to draw near to us? He plans to give us our worth. Our worth to him comes out of our worship of him. You see? Our worth comes out of our worship of him. So guess what happens when we fail to worship? What are we missing out on? Our incalculable worth to our loving Heavenly Father who sent his only son Jesus to die for us. What greater love is this, huh, than that? A marriage without intimacy is no marriage at all. And I don't mean just sexual intimacy. You know, when you've been married 26 years, you begin to realize huh, there's a greater intimacy that makes sex pale in comparison to. A marriage without intimacy is no marriage at all. Not just sex, but that place of being fully known and still being fully loved. You see, that's the deal in worship. You see, worship is not about a few songs on a Sunday morning. It's about a place in God that we move into every day of our life where we are fully known by Him. Isn't that a scary thought to be fully known by anybody? We may get a taste of it with our spouse or a taste of it with our children, especially with our spouse to know that they fully know us and they fully love us. But I dare say even our husbands and wives and kids don't know certain things, do they? The deep things in us where insecurity abides and where we hide, where we barricade ourselves in. But worship, our worship of our loving Heavenly Father is to be fully known by Him where His eyes are searching to and fro and He sees every dark thought. He sees every room in the attic. He sees every corner, every shelf on the refrigerator. He goes to that middle shelf on the refrigerator and He looks to the very back, just right behind the ranch dressing and He sees that spot. Fully known. Scary, isn't it? To be that fully known. But what do we get back? To be fully loved in that place. This is what worship is all about, my friends. And why the enemy works so hard to bring such division in that area within the church and through the week. You see, Satan operates on a principle that misery loves company. He once enjoyed this intimacy with God himself. Lucifer once enjoyed the intimacy on the holy mountain with God in eternity past. And because of his sin, he lost that intimacy with God that he enjoyed. And now he's miserable in the absence, the antichrist of his life and his in existence. So what does he want to deprive you of? Misery loves company. He wants to make you miserable in the same misery that he lives in. But as priests, we have this opportunity that the fire of the altar, the eternal flame on which sacrifices were offered to God was to be continual. 
It was so important, he repeated it three times. Other duties could be postponed. Other tasks could be deferred. There was nothing more important than keeping the fire going. Can I tell you, my friends, there is nothing more important in your life than keeping your fire and your devotion to God tended on a regular basis, morning and evening. The moment you stop adding the wood, the moment you stop carrying out the ashes that are revealed, it will begin to eclipse the glory and power and ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's nothing more important than tending the fire. And can I tell you, Sunday morning for 30 minutes at best is putting a twig on that fire in comparison to our responsibility of the week. Because if that's all you do, on a Sunday morning, then you'll have no choice but to come in here to get something because you'll have nothing to bring. You have nothing to bring. So you have to come to get. And that what you're getting is going to be filtered through your personal preferences and likes and dislikes. And that's the guaranteed recipe for leaving with criticism on your lips. Predictable it is, young Skywalker. Predictable it is. But when you come to bring something, you will not be incapacitated by your personal preferences or criticisms. I remember hiking up the mountains not too far from the Amazon River Basin in Brazil. Go up a mountain to find somebody that lived up there getting chewed on by mosquitoes and climbing up and it was hot and it was humid and I, and I heard this awful racket it sounded like, a, sounded like a bunch of pots and pans being banged on. And, and I got off of my path. I got to go see what's going on over there. And I, and I walked up and on this little cutout on this mountain in the, in the midst of just this abject poverty and that, was, that was there. And I remember this little church that was meeting under a little lean-to off of this tree. And they were there, maybe just, you know, 20 or 25 of them. And they didn't have sound systems and microphones and drums and bass guitars and we thank God for all those things they didn't have access to them all they could find was some tin pots some big cutlery <laughs> and they were beating it but they were worshiping the living God and I want you to know their worship was as pure and undefiled and ash free as anything I have ever seen since because they didn't have the luxury of personal preferences. Any one of them would have swapped places with us right now, yet their fire was purer than ours is right now. Who should swap places with who, I wonder? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Perhaps the seats at the back of the banquet are far more valuable than those on the front. This is what God is after in us. Not to harm us, but to bestow upon us such great worth as we begin to see ourselves as sons and daughters of the Most High King. Is it burning in your life? Is the fire burning? Is it clean? Is it fresh? Let me offer you a dangerous prayer. If you could just stand with me. It's a prayer from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 64. <laughs> it's a dangerous prayer. Isaiah prays this, oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as the fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. 
your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies will learn the reason for your fame. You see, when we as the body of Christ become those kind of worshipers, this is what Jesus meant when he said, I am looking and desiring for worshipers who will worship me in spirit and in truth. This is what he was talking about. It had nothing to do with songs or genre or style or volume or decibel levers, but it had everything to do with ascribing immeasurable worth unto the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, not to a God who needs it, but to a God who says, in that place, I will visit upon you worth beyond your farthest imaginations. Insecurity will be done away with. Condemnation will flee. Shame will vanish from you. And you will walk in such courage and such victory and such security because you're mine and nothing shall pluck you out of my hand. Nothing can do it. Nothing can ever separate you from my love. And the more that ash you remove, the more you will walk in that reality. <laughs> And that's the place of peace, my friends. Why? Because he loves us. The byproduct of that love, that our enemies would learn then the reason, the reason of the fame of our God. They're not looking for big buildings. They're not looking for clever programs. They're not looking for hip and cool billboards. This world is dying because they need Jesus. And you're Jesus and I'm Jesus. We are his body throughout the week.